Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Work sucks. Am I right, Jay? Yeah, Kay. It does. But luckily, the Fuck My Work Life podcast is here to help you through. In this comedy podcast, we share memorable workplace stories through guests and listener submissions in the hopes of brightening your day, or at least leave you thinking, maybe you don't have it so bad after all. Listen to Fuck My Work Life on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on all the socials at FMWLPod. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. You can support Bad Axe and get three years of bonus episodes over at patreon.com backslash Pod. You also get ad-free episodes. There's a link in our show notes and membership start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and by telling a friend about us. Now, on to today's case. Today, we are going to Niles, Ohio in March of 2015. The city of Niles is located in the northeast part of Ohio, not too far from the border with Pennsylvania. It's located about one hour and 15 minutes away from the city of Cleveland. Just to give you an idea, Niles is home to nearly 20,000 residents. That's pretty good size. Yeah, pretty good size, smallish city. Yeah, it's like a small, it's like a smallish city, Mm -hmm. big town, something like that, yeah. It also has a high Italian-American population, which plays a big part in the city's culture. And I just thought that was interesting. That is interesting. The city's claim to fame is that President William McKinley, who was the 25th U.S. president, was born there. And they are very proud of that (laughs) fact. I bet they are. Wasn't President McKinley one of the ones who was assassinated, though? Honestly, don't remember. Pretty sure. Like, somewhere my, my elementary school history teacher or my middle school history teacher is... Making that disappointed man meme face. I have a bachelor's degree in political science. I'm pretty sure that I'm like legally required to know that. (laughs) Gonna say that I'm pretty sure. All right. That's not why we're here though. (laughs) (laughs) In March of 2015, 94-year-old Marie Belcastro was living in a cozy three-bedroom house at 509 Cherry Avenue in Niles. Her dad actually built the house for his family. And she had lived there her entire life, which is such a sweet detail. Yeah, it is. That her dad built this house. Now, Marie was spending her golden years there. She was a tiny lady with a big spirit. Only four foot seven. Wow, that is very small. Marie weighed between 80 and 85 pounds, which is normal because she's just very small. Yeah, yeah. For that height, that's probably pretty reasonable. Yes, that's a normal weight for her height. Despite her small stature, she was a force of nature. Marie lived in Niles her entire life, and she had married her husband, Fred Belcastro, way back in 1941. Wow. A whole different era from 2015. Yeah, for real. The pair shared a long marriage before Fred died in 1989, and Marie did a whole bunch of exciting events. Okay, so during World War II, which is right around the time that she got married, Marie was one of the Rosie the Riveter women. Oh, wow. And had a job at Packard Electric. That's pretty cool. I know, right? When the war ended, she went back to doing some wifely things, and she raised two daughters named Karen and Deborah. But she ended up planning to go back to work. And essentially, like once she was finished with that phase in her life, She became a school bus driver and also an aide for the Trumbull County School District. Nice. 
Marie was a lifelong Catholic and was actively involved in her parish community, participating in both the Catholic Women's Guild and the Monday Rosary Club. Even at 94, she had a ton of hobbies, including wine tasting, which is a great hobby. Yes, it is. Cooking, also a great hobby. Yep. Raising houseplants, top tier. Absolutely. Playing cards, traveling, and spending time with her family. She sounds like a pretty cool lady. Mm-hmm. She is very cool, which brings me to my next interesting piece of information that her family had included in her obituary is that at the age of 90, she had started a new hobby, which was fly fishing, <laughs> which that's, is badass. That's absolutely badass. That is yes. spectacular. Well done. Despite being 94, Marie was still living her best life. She lived in her on her own in her house, and she was motoring through life with an astounding amount of energy that I feel like we can all aspire to. She was not going to let getting older slow her down. Not yet. And I feel like it's important to note that because I feel like sometimes when we've talked about cases that involve elderly people, people get a little dismissive because like, oh, they've lived a long life. But that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have the option to live a longer life yeah, or that they're not super important because they are. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Sadly, as you may have concluded from the fact that I'm telling you a lot about Marie right now, her life was going great except for some things were not in her control and tragedy was unfortunately about to strike. Which brings us to March 31st, 2015. That day, Marie's neighbor called authorities to report an assault. This woman lived across the alleyway from Marie with her husband, teenage son, and young daughter. The neighbor called the Niles Police Department and said that her 15-year-old son, Jacob, had just come home and that he had been assaulted. When Jacob arrived home just after 5 p.m. that day, he had been covered in blood and his mom was really afraid. Oh, wow. The teen had gone directly to the home's bathroom where he collapsed onto the floor. He had blood on his shirt, shoes, and glasses, and he claimed that some other teens had jumped him and had forced him to drink alcohol at gunpoint. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he had told this to several family members, and his mom was super freaked out. So she called the police to report this, and Officer Todd Mobley responded to the call. Jacob LaRosa was dressed in boxers and a pair of socks by the time that Officer Mobley arrived, and both of them had blood on them. He had also been throwing up in the bathroom. He seemed intoxicated and wasn't making much sense. Officer Mobley says that Jacob was mumbling something that sounded a lot like, quote, they're going to kill me for this, unquote. Uh-oh. So you're probably thinking, who? Yeah, exactly. Who was going to kill him? Right, who is they? It sounds like he's afraid of someone. Well, that morning, LaRosa had been released from a juvenile detention center where he'd been briefly incarcerated for a parole violation. Wow. As you can imagine, he had been embroiled in some legal issues to already be having parole violations Yeah. at the age of 15. That's what I was going to say. I was like, damn, man. Well, LaRosa's problems had started when he was just eight years old, and over the next seven years, he would be in and out of treatment facilities because of his out-of-control behavior. As his family and the court system saw treatment for him, doctors had diagnosed him with a lot of different conditions. These did include on the severe scale bipolar disorder, also various mood disorders, ADHD, and defiance disorders. Despite years of treatment and medication, he continued to spiral out of control. LaRosa had previously attacked family members, which means that he was facing charges for domestic battery at various points. In one of those instances, that was about a year before this happened, he had actually hit his little sister, who was only seven at the time, with a heavy glass jar candle. Oh, my God. And he had thrown it at her face, and it hit her above her eye. And she had to be hospitalized while she got, like, a whole bunch of stitches. I bet, yeah. Yeah. Jesus. So, this is the type of behavior that had kind of become normal for his family to have to deal with. He had been in and out of juvenile detention, and he had even escaped once during a prior incarceration. So, 
the people who lived around them had started to think of him as being this very dangerous teen. Yeah, with good reason. Mm -hmm. Now, he was claiming that he was the victim of an attack. And that's how everything was perceived at first. Officer Mobley wasn't really sure what to make of the situation and who the attackers could be, who he thought was going to kill him. But he could see that there was blood all over Jacob. And it didn't seem to be coming from any wounds. He knew that something had happened But it just didn't make a clear picture yet. So he did the best thing that you could do in that situation. And he called for an ambulance. Because that way, if the teen was injured, the hospital obviously would find it. He would get the medical care he would needed, that he needed, and they could figure out exactly what was going on. But if he wasn't injured and something else had happened, and it was someone else's blood, then authorities would have all this on record. They could prove, like, We took him to the hospital immediately. He didn't have any wounds on him. We collected the blood, all that stuff. So this is what they're thinking. So the ambulance shows up and Officer Mobley was walking out of the house as the paramedics were loading La Rosa into the ambulance. But he actually didn't make it to the hospital. And that's because when he got outside, he saw a distraught woman in the alleyway who was trying to call him over and was trying to talk to the paramedics to try to get some help. Oh. That woman was Marie Belcastro's daughter. Marie lived across the alley from La Rosa, and her home was clearly a crime scene. The home's side door that faced the alley had been forced open, and the police couldn't tell if it was kicked open or just shoved open with a shoulder, but essentially it had been broken into. Yeah. From what you could see standing outside the door, there was also blood all over the place inside the house. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So, Marie's daughter was very alarmed, and she was worried about her mom, and she had been asking the paramedics if they could help her mom, because she sees this this ambulance and is like, help, because she was also calling 911 for help. Yeah, sure. So, if you see an ambulance and emergency responders, you're going to be like, hey, over here. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, Officer Mobley decides to go in the house with Marie's daughter, which, looking back, probably would have been a great idea to leave the daughter outside because she doesn't need to be seeing all this. Yeah. But Officer Mobley and the daughter go inside to look for Marie. And one of the things they notice immediately, besides the fact that the living room has a ton of blood everywhere, is that someone had pushed Marie's antique secretary desk against the front door to prevent anyone from opening it. Oh no! And if you're not like, if you're not familiar with a secretary desk, my mom actually has one. Well, I mean, my dad has it now, but it's essentially a very tall piece of furniture, about maybe eight feet tall, like ceiling height type tall. And they usually have a cabinet on the top, and then they have this really this fold down part in the middle that becomes a desk, and then there's drawers underneath it. So it's a really big piece of furniture, like kind of like a skinny china hutch like a smaller yeah half size of a china hutch kind of right so this is a really large piece of furniture and obviously marie who is tiny is not the one who post who pushed it in front of the door yeah so they notice the secretary and they also notice that the living room has blood but there's also a very ominous blood trail that's leading down the hallway so that's pretty alarming yeah for sure The two of them followed this blood trail down the hallway and the officer and Marie's daughter together found Marie and she was deceased on the floor of the first bedroom that came off the hallway. Oh no. Yeah. And it was extremely terrible. So she was very covered in blood. She had noticeable head injuries that had disfigured her to the point that she wasn't recognizable. She was curled up into the fetal position and... Her body was nude from the waist down. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. Come on. So, obviously a victim of a very horrific violent attack. Later on, the medical examiner, Dr. Humphrey Germanewick, conducted an autopsy and found that Marie had died from blunt force head trauma. And the attack was so vicious that the beating actually had crushed her skull and her brain had come out and also it ruptured her eyes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Additionally, her killer had attempted to sexually assault her. Dude, that is so, so messed up. On a lot of levels. Yeah, like everything about that is wrong. 
Yes. So definitely none of this should be happening yeah. ever. Yeah. But it did. So this is what happened. With the finding of Marie's body, an officer rushed to the hospital to place La Rosa under arrest for the attack because he was obviously an initial suspect. Yeah. They actually handcuffed him to his emergency room bed to let him know that he was under arrest. At first, when he was questioned, La Rosa had denied going into Marie's house at all. Later on, though, he claimed that he did go through the side door into her house, but claimed that Marie had let him in and given him $10. Okay, but what happened after that? Like, why, why did he hurt her? I mean... He's pretending like he didn't do that. Yeah, look, be real. Yeah, it, it just so happened that he <laughs> yeah. went over there. He happened to be at the scene of a bloody crime and then mm-hmm. happened to be seen shortly thereafter covered in blood. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's innocent. Yeah. I mean, at least he has a reason why his lies are bad because he's 15, but still. Yeah. By the way, in case you're wondering, La Rosa did know Marie because they weren't just neighbors. She had actually paid him to mow her lawn and rake up leaves and had been known to help him and be kind to him. So it's especially heinous that he would choose her to attack considering that she was basically treating him like a grandson or something like that. Right. She's treating him with kindness when he probably didn't, you know, didn't deserve some kindness if we're all being honest with ourselves. Right. Yeah, exactly. When authorities tested LaRosa's blood alcohol level, they found that it was three times the legal limit for adults. Wow. Yeah. And since he was underage, there's no legal limit because he wasn't (laughs) supposed to be drinking. Right. Exactly. But that's very alarming. And, So they started trying to piece together, how do we have this drunk teenager committing this horribly violent crime? Well, they knew that the killer had entered the house through the side door. And based on blood spatter, they determined that the attack had likely started in the living room. That was the main focus of the attack, like where all the blood was. Well, where most of the blood was. In the living room, blood covered the floor and the walls, as well as Marie's couch and a lamp. On the living room floor, investigators recovered a bloody flashlight, and it was a heavy mag light flashlight, and that's what they believed was the murder weapon. Dude. Yeah. They also found Marie's sweatpants that she had been wearing and also her underwear that had been removed by the killer. The blood trailed from the living room down the hallway into that front bedroom where they found Marie deceased, and that bed also had blood all over it. She was found next to the bed, so likely she was placed on the bed at some point and then was off of it, either because she was pushed or rolled. Wow. In the blood, investigators also found some footprints from the killer. So whoever had killed Marie, which obviously we all are suspecting La Rosa, right? Yep. They had left some footprints. Outside Marie's home, they found some empty alcohol bottles, which they collected as evidence. And... It made sense to collect those because La Rosa was intoxicated, so he had to have gotten alcohol from somewhere. Also, one of the alcohol bottles had blood on it, so that indicated that it probably had something to do with the crime. Around the same time that investigators began collecting all this evidence, the officer who had arrested La Rosa at the hospital collected his underwear and socks that he had been wearing because when they started doing treatment, they had him take off his underwear and socks and change into some medical garb essentially and the nurses had bagged up his socks and his underwear and the cops were like that has some blood on it so i'll just be taking those yep and then he also had had blood on his groin area they discovered when they were like having him change so they had him wipe that off with a washcloth and the cops also collected that in an evidence bag yep While all that was happening, a separate investigator went ahead and got a warrant to swab different parts of his body because they figured he probably had some evidence on him. I bet he did. Yeah, so that included his hands and also his groin area. And hospital staff scraped his nails as part of this warrant, and later that would become a point of contention over whether or not nail scrapings count as a hand swab. Swabs from La Rosa's groin area came back with Marie's DNA on it at a later time when it had been tested. So that's obviously some very damning evidence. Investigators were also able to recover the shirt and shoes that he had been wearing that day, and they both also had Marie's blood, as well as his boxers and his socks. 
A lot of blood happening here. But that's not all the evidence that they recovered. A neighbor reviewed some footage from a security camera near their house and found video of La Rosa walking from Marie's home to his home around the time of the crime, essentially leaving her house and going home right before his mom called to report that he had been assaulted. Yeah. And he was carrying a bottle of alcohol with him. And the, the neighbor told police that he was sure that that bottle of alcohol was a bottle of whiskey that Marie owned. Oh, no. And again, they recovered these bottles. So, like, there's fingerprint involved. You know, like, they can tell where the yeah. bottle came from. Yeah, they can find out. The evidence against LaRosa was piling up. And with his violent history, it wasn't totally surprising that he would do something like this. It was just a surprise that he had targeted someone as well-loved as Marie, a woman who had helped him. Because of his age, the case against LaRosa would take three years to wind through the courts. Initially, the district attorney had to file charges against him in juvenile court because he was only 15 years at the, t- at the time of the crime, which is so weird to hear in a way because whenever you're charged with crimes in juvenile court, you're found delinquent. So they had to charge him as delinquent in murder. Yeah. You know, that's weird. That is weird. So they charged him there, but the whole time they were intending on filing a motion to move the case to adult courts, and they literally filed the motion the same day as they were filing the charges. The DA charged him with one count of aggravated murder, one count of aggravated burglary, one count of aggravated robbery, and one count of attempted rape. Yep. Leading up to the trial, the defense filed a motion to suppress the underwear, socks, washcloth, and fingernail scraping collected at the hospital room, arguing that LaRosa's Fourth Amendment rights were violated. There were some problems with this evidence, partially because when they first arrested Jacob, for some reason they did not Mirandize him appropriately. So he also had been asked some questions and made some statements before he was properly Mirandized. Oh, no. Which is weird. But also there was a lot of debate about when the underwear, socks, and washcloth were taken. So the underwear and socks belonged to him, and they did not wait for a warrant. Essentially, the officer was operating on the idea that they were in plain view, but they were being taken as part of his hospital care when he was being viewed as a possible victim. So there was kind of a gray area there. Mm. Also, the washcloth, there was not really a gray area with the washcloth because he... The washcloth actually belonged to the hospital. So even though he used it to wipe himself and then tried to say, well, that was mine now, the hospital could give that to the police, apparently. The court later did decide that the underwear and socks shouldn't have been given to the police directly. But because the DNA found on them was repetitive to the other DNA found at the scene, it really didn't make a difference. But that did become a point of contention. The fingernail scrapings was also something that was confusing because... The warrant gave the hospital slash police permission to get hand swabs, penile swabs, and I think in his mouth swabs, but they included fingernail scrapings as well in that. And the the government was like, the prosecution was like, that's part of his hand. So like they were hand swabs. And the court eventually did disagree with that, but there were some different opinions because like, the whole point of a search warrant is to limit the scope of what people can search. So, it does become a little bit of a gray area there. But I understand where they're going. I mean, that is part of the hand. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's hard to, to, to like, argue that fingernails aren't part of the hand. <laughs> I know, right? But regardless, that DNA also was repetitive. So, it didn't really make a difference in the end since they had so much DNA. Yeah. The court denied the request to suppress this saying that LaRosa had no expectation of privacy when he went to the treatment in the hospital and that the fingernails were part of his hand. And again, that was something that will be appealed later. Yeah, but They're not wrong. Finally, LaRosa was set to face a jury in February 2018. By that point, though, he had decided to change his plea. <laughs> there was a lot of evidence against him. So, on February 13th of 2018, LaRosa pleaded no contest to charges of aggravated murder attempted rape, aggravated burglary, and aggravated robbery. After all, as we have concluded here, the evidence against him was overwhelming. Yep, it was. And based on the investigation, here's what authorities believe happened that day. 
Upon his release from the detention center, LaRosa, who I will remind you was 15 at the time, immediately met up with his friends and started drinking. By the time he arrived home that afternoon, he was completely drunk. Now, I had a question of, where is he getting this alcohol? Yep. Like, what the fuck? Because at first I thought maybe he was getting it at his house, but then why would you keep buying it if you knew your kid was doing this? Well, part of that might be what was the motive for this crime. Because when he got home, he didn't initially go to his house. He went across the alleyway to 509 Cherry Avenue, which was Marie's house. And his motive for going there was likely to get alcohol and possibly to also get money to even buy more alcohol from people. To get inside, he pushed or kicked the side door until it opened and encountered Marie in her living room. Once inside Marie's home, LaRosa attacked her with a heavy maglite flashlight. She was no match for him because she was only four foot seven. And 94 years old. Yeah, 94 years old, around 80 pounds. And he's a very large teenager. Yeah. After beating her in the head to the point that her skull was very crushed, he dragged her down the hallway into this bedroom and put her on the bed and tried to assault her. At least he failed at doing that. Yeah. And it's unclear why, because at the time she was still alive, maybe, I mean, she had very severe head wounds. So I don't know that she could fight back, but something prevented him from doing it, thankfully. Yeah. And at that point, he decided to leave. On his way out, he stole two bottles of alcohol, and he also rifled through Marie's purse, which he had emptied and taken some things from, looking for money. He went outside, drained the bottle of alcohol, and left it outside, and then went inside and told his family that he had been attacked. Yeah. That's messed up. After pleading no contest, LaRosa's sentencing was scheduled for later in the year. At his sentencing, Marie's daughters showed how this loss had impacted them, and one of them also asked the judge to give LaRosa the harshest sentence possible. At the time, that was life in prison without parole. There was actually a pre-sentencing evaluation done on him where, like, doctors and psychologists and stuff had had gone over his records to try to figure out if there were any mitigating factors in this case or in, like, what kind of a risk he would be in the future. And there weren't a lot of mitigating factors found, and he was found to be very high risk for recidivism, which makes sense because he's been essentially in some form of treatment or in the system since he was a child. And he's progressively gotten worse, even though he's been offered a lot of assistance to get better. And I think that's what's important is that it's not like he started having trouble at age eight and his family like checked out from the system. Literally he had been given countless opportunities to be any kind of rehabilitated to take medication. He'd been given medication. He'd been given therapy. He'd been given all kinds of programs and he just kept getting worse. And just the fact that like literally on the day of this murder, he left the detention center and immediately started committing crime again. Yeah. Like didn't even make it an hour or a family dinner or anything just left immediately started committing crime again. Yeah. And just escalated to murder on that first day out. That is not a good sign. No, it's a terrible sign. So he was labeled as high risk for recidivism. In October 2018, Judge W. Wyatt McKay sentenced LaRosa to life in prison without parole, plus an additional 31 years in prison for the other charges. Basically, it was two 11-year sentences and then an eight-year sentence. The 31 extra years was set to be consecutive to his life sentence, and that way... If somehow he were to get out or something, he would have this backup. Yeah, the second set of of years. And Judge McKay did that on purpose to ensure that he would never get out of prison. And they had even mentioned being serious. If he had been 18 and they took it to trial, he would probably have gotten the death penalty. Yeah. Because of, of how bad this crime is and the fact that he had a series of juvenile crimes leading up to it. Yep. In addition to his prison sentence... LaRosa has to register as a tier three sex offender. It seems that he may have thought that pleading no contest would somehow win him a lighter sentence, 
because he did not like this sentence. <laughs> and despite the fact that he had he had basically made a plea, La Rosa immediately appealed his conviction and sentence on several grounds, including arguing that his case should have stayed in the juvenile court. And there was an entire appeal that a, a lawyer wrote arguing that he should have stayed in the juvenile court because he was only 15 and that he had had mental health problems. And the court was like, um, did you not see that he had been in juvenile detention? And nothing happened. Like the point of the juvenile system is that some youth offenders need, yeah, they can be rehabilitated because of really bad stuff happened to them. You know, this is not that case. Like he's already, they tried and failed at rehabilitating him. This is not for him. He's way beyond what the system could have done for him in the few years that he would have been able to stay in a juvenile facility. Yeah, agreed. This is this is one of those you need to be separated from society mm-hmm. cases. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So that was part of his initial appeals. Also, he had some other appeals as well. So his main arguments were that the court should have granted his request to suppress that evidence, which I've already told you why they decided that that did not matter because essentially the only evidence they said should have been suppressed were the shoes and the underwear. But again, there was so much DNA evidence it would have mattered. Also, he argued that he received ineffective assistance of counsel because his lawyer should have requested a change of venue and should have challenged the no contest plea. And essentially he says that there would have been less evidence if they had suppressed the evidence he wanted to suppress and therefore he could have maybe had a contest. Like, huh. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, no, it, it does. That he could but... have taken it to trial, but I feel like there's... That's not a thing that's happening for him. Like... I know, right? There's a lot of evidence against you, buddy. And this particular crime is so bad that I just can't foresee a situation where going to trial would have at all helped him. No. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. In August of 2023, the 11th District Court of Ohio denied LaRosa's most recent appeal and affirmed his conviction. However, he actually still has a chance of getting out of prison, and it could happen soon. So buckle up for this one. We all know that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in recent years that it's unconstitutional to automatically sentence teen offenders to life in prison with no chance of parole. But they can receive life in prison with, after they've received a hearing to determine if there's mitigating factors and so on and so forth. It sounds like, based on the fact that they did have a sentencing hearing and the judge weighed all these issues and there was an entire pre-sentencing report, that La Rosa's sentence of life in prison without parole probably should have still stood because this wasn't an automatic sentence. The judge weighed heavily all of the information available and then decided... This is just that much of a heinous crime. You've had all these other attempts. Like This is what the whole, this is why we have life in prison without parole. It's yeah. for offenders like this. So that sentence should have still stood. But Ohio, like a lot of other states, has been crafting their own state laws regarding juvenile offenders. And in April 2021, the Ohio Senate passed Senate Bill 256, which has been nicknamed by a lot of Uh, crime victims' families as the Teenage Killer Protection Act. And Governor Mike DeWine signed that bill into law. The new law ensured that people who were convicted of murders they committed as teens will get a chance at parole, period. Even if they have all these other reasons, basically you can't get life without parole anymore. The way that it works is every single juvenile offender immediately got a parole hearing scheduled at the 25-year mark. And then after that, they would get an automatic parole hearing every five years if they were denied parole. Wow. Yeah. So in case you're keeping track, LaRosa committed this crime at the age of 15 and had been incarcerated since the crime. So that means that he would be getting out at age 40, which is occurring in the year 2040. Like he literally, as of right now, has a parole hearing scheduled for February of 2040 on his like inmate details. Jesus. Yeah. So that means that he will literally be 40 years old, which is so young. Yeah. In terms of murders. Yeah. Especially for a guy with this kind of violent history. Yeah. And he's literally in jail. Like he's serving 
time in prison. Okay, like I'm just the math doesn't compute here. No, it really and, doesn't, and that's terrible for the victims. It's terrible, there. and it's literally 16 years from now. Like it sounds 2040 sounds like far away. It's not that, but far. it's only 16 years from now, which is a trauma that I had to endure today as I was doing this math. <laughs> I was like, oh, 2040. Are they sure it's short? Because that's oh god. Oh, no, math, why are you doing this to me? Stop going up numbers, why? Anyway, he's that's so soon. If parole is denied, then under Senate Bill 256, he would have had to wait five more years for the next parole hearing. So that means the family would consistently be having to prepare for parole hearings because they don't want him ever out. Yeah. Just the idea that he would get out is, is not just about, as the family has explained it, it's not for them it's not about the punishment. It's about the safety and it's about consequences and it's about feeling like justice has been done. Because they know that that like they're very they're very Catholic. And so they know that like for their per their faith, you know, you're forgiving. They forgive, Marie forgives, etc. But it's not about the forgiveness aspect. It's about the fact that he's dangerous mm-hmm. and he's proven that countless times yeah. from like at every level that he's been given a chance. He's been proven that the violence is escalating. And so to have him not even really get any other further rehabilitation, have him serve 25 years in prison where he's just learned to be a better colonel, essentially, and then start parole hearings, it's just horrific that they just have to relive their trauma over and over and over and over again in order to try to keep him in jail to protect society and have peace of mind. Yeah. Also, too, I think part of it was one of the family members had mentioned that once they got him sent, when he got sentenced to life in prison, it felt like in a way that their grandmother's death had meaning because now he wouldn't hurt anybody else yeah. because he had hurt other people before. He had never, he had not killed anybody, but he had been violent towards other people. So to have him be locked away forever, it's like we're protecting society. So grandma, you know, she protected everyone. Yeah. But then now having him out again, it's like they took that that like comfort away in a way. Right, it invalidates. Yeah, it all of invalidates that. that comfort. Yeah, yeah. So that was the way that the law was structured after 2021. But there was a huge backlash, and I think a lot of it, honestly, Marie Bell Castro's family, especially her, one of her grandsons, I think his name is Brian. I'm sorry, I did not note his name, but he really worked hard at writing lawmakers and talking to news outlets about how hard this is for the families and mm. for other it's not just their family but any family of sure. the the people who are this violent and so the there was another law passed and in january of 2023 the governor signed a different law that's sb 288 which was actually about drunk drivers but they added an amendment and i'm not sure why it had to be on that law but that's what the law that was on they added an amendment that allows the parole board to set the length of time between parole hearings. So if you're denied parole at the 25-year mark, they can set the length before your next hearing as long as 10 years. Mm. And so that at least gives the family more time between parole hearings so that they don't have to constantly be preparing for parole hearings. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I feel like we've talked about this on the podcast before, that there are definitely youth offenders that have been unfairly sentenced to life in prison There's like two categories, I would say. There's youth offenders who lashed out at someone because they were in a severely abusive situation. And the only way to get out of it in their minds was to harm their caregiver or someone connected to that situation. Like there are definitely youth offenders that we've talked about on this podcast Mm -hmm. that, you know, committed a horrible crime at the age of 14 because of their life circumstances and definitely should get a chance at parole. Not necessarily a guarantee, but a chance. Yeah. And there's other youth offenders who were in a situation where, like, their parents were, like, making them do stuff. Or that they didn't even commit the murder, but were just there. But then got a mandatory sentence. Like, yeah, they should get a chance at parole. But someone who's consistently proven that they are a violent, dangerous person, like Jacob LaRosa, does not need to be guaranteed parole. Yep. I mean, the judge already considered any mitigating factors and decided, no, like this kid is going to jail. And yet he may be out of jail in 16 years. That's crazy. I know. It's frightening. He should not be out of jail. Mm -mm. Especially not that young. Because I would honestly be afraid, even if he were an old person, just being honest, because I feel like he has the propensity to do something. Yeah, I mean, 
40s prime serial killer that's age. That's prime serial killer age. Yeah. I mean, that's about the only escalation he can do that he hasn't already done. Yeah, I just kill as many people as humanly possible. Right, just go on a spree. Yeah, like, I mean... Yeah. And, I mean, that's what he did the last time he got out of custody. Immediately. <laughs> was go, 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 yeah. was go kill somebody. It's just so, start some crimes. Yeah, it's like, what's to stop him from doing that? Not one damn thing. Yeah. Like, so... I, I don't think this is... this. I mean... Maybe their parole board will do the right thing, but it's still traumatizing yeah. for their family to have to it keep is, going. It is to have to have to keep going you and know, have to talk about it because yeah. they have to like drag relive out the their pain. Yeah. yeah, relive the trial, mm-hmm. drag out all their pain to tell the parole board how much pain they're in. That is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's re-traumatizing, and it's not fair, especially with how bad of a crime this is. Yeah, this is really bad. Yeah, and one of her daughters saw her that way, which is just awful. Like, the yeah. fact that this poor lady is going to always see that, and now she's going to have to go into this courtroom and drag it all out again every freaking time they have a hearing. Yep. And she's not going to feel like she she can save it, because what if he gets out? Yep. She's going to have to go in there and drag it all out again. I think that they need to find a better way to handle these parole hearings at least, where maybe they can just record the first hearing and then rewatch it every time. <laughs> because right. that way, because it's just absurd that these people have to keep going to these hearings. Yeah. That is just the start of all of it. That's banana pants. Because I don't know, I don't understand our justice system sometimes because there's so many injustices we see where there are people who are obviously wrongly convicted or where there is some kind of, shenanigans at play or there's a kid that's 12 and put in a terrible situation and then they're sent to jail forever and then you have situations where like this where someone is given a whole bunch of opportunities doesn't take them and then they're like we need to make sure he has even more opportunities why don't we not give him the opportunities like let's just leave him in there and then maybe give opportunities to someone else who's needs the opportunities and deserves the opportunities and, again, he can just stay in the jail. I don't know for sure, but I feel like this is the kind of guy that 100% has one of those inmate websites. Oh, God. I didn't see oh, one God. when I was doing research, but, like, he just gives me that vibe of he for sure has one. He's like, it's not my fault. Blah, 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 blah. That blah, sounds blah, about blah, right. Blah, blah. Yeah. I also, for my own mental health, have to believe that his mom low-key thought he was lying the whole time. Because I don't know how you could live with him and watch him, like, assault your child and things like this. And then be like, oh, no, you were assaulted. Someone made you drink alcohol? Yeah. So, in my mind, I have, like, convinced myself that she knew the whole time but was just kind of going along with it so that she could call 911 (laughs) and get him out the house. Yeah, I know, She's like, oh, no. Like, let me just 911 help, please. Uh, my son might have been attacked. Also, um, send the cops. Like, <laughs> like, don't send an ambulance. I would like all the police. Like, if you could just send all of them, that'd be great. Yeah. Like, I need y'all to take him to jail. Not for, not because I'm afraid. That's not why. Can he hear us? Like, <laughs> maybe we shut the door to the bathroom. Oh my god. But yeah, there was there was a lot happening here. Also, I found it a little bit disturbing that if he was a crime victim. That, like, the hospital was involved in wiping down his nude body as 15. That was overshadowed by the fact that he's a piece of shit. But, like, (laughs) also, to be fair, he was very large as a 15-year-old. Like, if you didn't tell me his age, I would have assumed he was an adult. Wow. So maybe the hospital, although they should have his records, right? I don't know. Yeah. But not, not doing anything good. So Marie's family obviously misses her and... It's depressing. And I just, I feel like a lot of times cases with older people don't get a lot of attention because of the age of the victim. But literally, based on how vibrant she was at 94, I think she could have made it to like 100 or something. Probably. And she's important to her family and her community and herself. Like, if she can live 100 years, then let her live her years. Yeah, absolutely. Is Nobody she, should be taken before their time, and no, no, especially not in this. Fashion. Especially not this disgusting nonsense. Yeah, yeah this is this is really Ugh. bad. Also, I forgot to tell you this part. I kind of skipped over it in my notes. But one of the things that made the judge sentence him to such a long sentence is because in while he was incarcerated awaiting trial, he had been bragging uh, about he what did. he did yeah. and had also been making jokes about how he was like saving her for later. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's uh-huh. what kind of a piece of shit we're dealing with. And also, he 
struggled to express remorse is how they put it. Essentially, his remorse was his remorse button was, was like, all fake shit that like when he would try to express it, it was just like repeating like the I state my regret yeah, kind that, of remorse. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. And like, not genuine remorse. Yeah, it's like I state my regret. And like there were multiple like evaluators that had determined that. Like it wasn't like just one guy just had it out for him. Like no, they were trying to find any sort of redeeming quality and are like, there are no redeeming qualities here. Like, it's just, you know, bag of shit all the way down. Also, I looked up the house because the address was there. Anytime the address is there, I looked up the house. And it was kind of traumatizing looking at the house because it had been sold in, like, I think 2019. Because, I I mean, that also made me depressed that the family had had this house. Like, literally, their... Yep. Her father had built it. So, like, this was, like, a family home that had been built by a family member that's now tarnished by this horrific crime. Yeah. But they had to redo a bunch of stuff. And it's chilling to see the listing be, like, fresh paint in the living room and fresh carpet. And, th- and they had to cover up all the hardwood floors because the blood had soaked into the hardwood floors and had even mm-hmm. soaked into the basement because it had a basement that was, like, really done up like a little... It was, like, a little bar cafe downstairs in the basement. That they had been using for like gatherings and stuff. Yeah, that sounds cute until it gets soaked in blood. Yeah, and it's yeah. like horrific to look at this this house and like look at the listing and know that they had to paint it because according to the court docs, there had been like blood everywhere. Not yeah, blood and like brain and stuff like on the walls, and then like the blood had soaked into all the hardwood floors, so a lot of the rooms have carpet now because they couldn't get it out. Yeah. And so it's just really, it's just a disturbing situation all around yeah. for just like, yeah. Like, how does this even kind of thing happen, especially with such a nice lady? And what's weird is he broke in. He She probably would have let him in had mm-hmm. he just knocked because she already had helped him. It's just fucked up. Yeah, it really is. All the way around. And I have to tell you guys whenever I find something fucked up, as you know, because I get upset about it. And then I'm like, I'm going to tell the, pa- the, not the patrons. This is not the patrons. This is everybody. I have to tell everybody what happened. So I guess monitor your states for these types of laws. Because we have to, like, make laws that are helpful to the right people. And when I say right people, I mean people who are have mitigating factors, essentially. Like, again... Yeah. youth offenders that are actually not evil i don't it's hard to this is not good words it's hard, it's hard to put in it's hard to these put are not the, good words it's but, hard to legislate something like that but i mean yeah like, that's what the hearings are for though right exactly the whole point yeah. of the hearing was that you can look at the actual person as an example there are a brother and sister and i forget their names but i've thought about covering them that i think I think they covered like a parent or they killed a caregiver that was like abusing them severely. I think they were, they were like, it's like the poster child for youth offender who shouldn't be incarcerated. Like they never should have been incarcerated. They were both victims of horrific abuse and literally saved themselves, but got incarcerated. And part of it was a race thing because they're, they're both of the, the siblings were black and they were, that's partially why they got sent to jail forever. And then we have this guy who is just evil and then is getting parole right away. It's bizarre. Yeah, it is. It's it's bizarre. So, like, definitely not in favor of all youth offenders being locked away forever. But people like Jacob LaRosa should be in jail forever. And so I feel like one thing we can do is monitor our state's laws to see if they're kind of, like, ignoring the problems that could occur. Like, didn't we just do one from California where the person was going to get out right away who did the horrible crime because they passed a law about youth offenders? That sounds about right. And then there was a youth offender who had done something really terrible and they were like, oh, okay, well, he gets out now. And then the lawmakers were like, oops, we had an oopsie. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should like not just do things without reading things. If we're lawmakers, maybe let's just do better as a group. If you're a lawmaker, if you're a lawmaker, you're listening to this, maybe consider ramifications. Because sometimes there's ramifications, unforeseen issues that occur. And I'm really good at that, that my anxiety is so good at unseen 
ramifications that could happen. <laughs> they just need someone who has really bad anxiety to come read these laws and then be like, what if this happens? <laughs> and then you won't have these oopsies because he still gets his parole hearing in 25 years. Well, 25 years from his incarceration date, which is February 2040. He could literally get out of jail in March 2040. So if you live in Ohio, bad news for you. Good luck in 16 years. I guess you have 16 years to leave Ohio. Yay. This is how I help. Yeah. Aaron's looking at me like, this is not helpful at all. <laughs> it's really, it's not helpful. We have our own crime that's happening in our new neighborhood. It's just in case y'all are wondering how it's going. We love our new house, but there's a whole bunch of stray dogs everywhere that are super scary. So if you have advice on dealing with stray dogs, please tell me. Apparently, this is normal for our neighborhood. I actually had to join next door to ask about it. Our next door is actually really chill for this area. And I'm, so I'm grateful for that. Everyone was really friendly and there's not a lot of like weird, creepy posts. Like I know next door has a reputation for having a bunch of Karens on it. But I think our neighborhood just is like low on Karens. So that part is good. The low, the bad part is that without Karens, apparently you get a bunch of random dogs. <laughs> Maybe the Karens are what report the dogs. And when you don't have Karens, the dogs just run around and try to attack you. So I got a new bicycle and was literally trying to ride it for health reasons. Because I think I've mentioned on the podcast a couple of times that I have chronic pain. And I'm trying to be more active and also maybe shift some of like some of my extra weight so that my pain will get better. And I can't really do like a lot of foot-based type exercise because my feet are, real, are really jacked up. So I thought I will ride a bicycle, right? I looked it up. It's okay. Like it's supposed to be a better way. And so I get this bicycle and a dog attacked me on my bicycle. I mean, it didn't get me technically, but it almost did. Yeah. And it was very, it was like this really scary barking it like this, like aggressive, like, you know, that kind of barking is very scary, you guys. So if you have dog tips, I got some gel pepper spray to spray at the dog, which apparently is okay. It's like not that harmful to the dog, allegedly, but makes him go away. Although I did see someone else say that that just makes them mad, which would be worse. That would be worse. Yeah. So there's just like a whole, I saw literally four dogs in nine minutes of riding my bicycle. I had to go home because I was so scared because the the second, the third and the fourth dog were together and they were like running towards me and I'd already gotten away from that other dog. So I just like went home. Yeah. It was no bueno. Yeah. That's not good. Yes. So if you have dog advice, please tell me. I'm going to try riding on this trail next because there's a trail by our house. that's like really, really short. But according to the internet, whenever there's a trail, there's a lot of dogs that are on it so the dogs don't attack as much because there's a lot of dog sense or something mm. so they feel less territorial of it or allegedly interesting yeah so a lot of dogs i'm gonna let you go because i think i think aaron's getting a little tired he's been working hard all right we love you guys we're hoping you're having a good february it's almost valentine's day so hopefully you're feeling a lot of self-love because that's the kind of love that's the most important and also, we appreciate you guys. So have good weeks and weekends and stay safe and monitor the laws that your legislature is passing. Bye-bye. Bye.